All right. Hi. How you doing? Uh, we're starting three years with Jesus today. Woo! I've been looking forward to this. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll uh, open the text together this morning. God bless us this morning as we open the scriptures. I pray that you'd speak to us in new ways. Uh, God, uh, even when these stories are familiar, uh, for, for those who have heard these stories for decades, God, speak a new word and compel us ever forward into the life you have created us for. It's in the name of Jesus, everyone said. Amen. So one of the things uh, we're really wanting to see happen as we do this three years with Jesus is our whole community engaging this on more than just Sunday mornings. Uh, I know a, a lot of people can't be here every Sunday morning, obviously, so the podcasts are always available to listen to online. Uh, we're, we have a team of people who are going to be writing discussion questions uh, based on these texts and, and teachings. Uh, we're encouraging families to uh, be doing this together, friends to be doing this together, and our faith communities to be doing this together. Our faith communities are our small groups, and it's uh, the... It, it's where I believe church really happens. Uh, when people gather together in smaller groups and journey together and experience the life of Jesus together. And so if you're not in a faith community, uh, please let me know or Brian Tabor know. Uh, and something we want to do over the next couple of weeks is highlight some different faith communities that are meeting in our community so that if you're not in a faith community, you can hear about different faith community opportunities. Uh, so I'm a part of a faith community, and uh, our faith community is actually meeting uh, later today after the service, and you're welcome to jump into that if you want to experience it. Uh, this morning, Christine's going to come up and share about the faith community she's a part of and helps co-lead. So please welcome Christine. So she's going to share a little bit about what her faith community is like, where they meet, when they meet, practical things like that, but then also probably why you're the coolest faith community and people should join yours. Is that right? That's right. Okay. So I'm Christine Lenahan, and my husband and I um, used to belong to the Carnahan, Martin, and so forth um, faith group. We joined that faith group um, when we pretty much settled at this church and figured out how to navigate and where to be at. Um, we picked that one because it worked for our schedule, family schedule. With work and four kids, it was just really difficult to figure out where to go. Um, initially, we joined them because Lori Carnahan was so wonderful. She, she literally said, I know it's tough for you, but if it helps, I'll make dinners for, for your kids. I'll even like figure out how to get them to our house because school's in Fairfax for you, and we live right up the street up in San Anselmo. So that's how it started. And um, that faith group just grew and grew and grew. And so just because we have four kids that need to be driven everywhere, we decided to strategically moved to another one just right here with the Brannons, and they're just literally across the street. Our household moved from the other side of the freeway over to end of Venetia. So um, we're in a faith community with the Bristers, um, with Michelle, with the Brannons, with um, the, the Stanish family, and Vicki and Paul Gray. And we meet Tuesday nights 
we get together about three out of four um, Tuesday evenings a month. And I have to tell you, I love it. So here's the typical scenario. We have a crazy busy week, and we're just kind of like, oh my God, we can't add one more thing. But here comes faith community. We almost feel like pulling out because we're so tired, but our kids will be like, whose house is it at? We can't wait. We go, and we're always so blessed. Oftentimes it's nice because we do it at our house, and then I kind of feel like um, I can stay stationed, pick up our kids. Everyone knows what to do when they come over. The doors open, they watch my kids. We go running around, pick up the kids, come back, and it still kind of rolls by itself. I love that um, in the week, we can just plan on getting together with other believers. And it's a place where I feel like you're just yourself. You go to work, you go to, you know, you're at school functions and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it gets so busy, but it's kind of coming back to the table with your family where you can be yourself. We could have different beliefs politically, family situations that are all over the map. However, we just come together, share stories, share concerns, and pray about them. And um, I'll tell you, since we've joined faith group, two faith groups, I can promise you, prayers answered. Um, in one group, we actually wrote them down. And recently, when I visited that group, in part, a um, couple families, and we were just talking about prayers, all of them were literally answered. And it's dating back to years, of course, so it's not like instant. But it's where you get to go back and remember how God has showed up for you and your family members and your friends. And those prayers have been answered. So I love that. I need that. It builds faith. And it's something that we all have to do. We should look for how God is answering prayers in our lives. And so I love getting to know you intimately that way. And I hope that as time and life and events shift, that our faith groups can shift too so that I can continue to know each of you more in a deeper way, and eventually join yours too, so. <laughs> I, I uh, said you were gonna tell people why yours is the coolest and should join yours, but if Lori Carnahan's gonna make dinner for the kids, <laughs> I think you just sold theirs. Absolutely, anyway. Thanks, Christine. All right, so faith communities, if you're not in one, uh, let us know and we'd love to get you plugged in. Let's uh, open to Luke 15. Um, this idea of three years with Jesus, if, you're, uh, if you want to see where we're going, where this uh, whole kind of teaching arc, series arc is going, there is a whole page on our website uh, that talks about uh, what this series is all about and lists the schedule for the next three years, uh, basically September through May over the next three years, different gospel texts and uh, journeying through these gospel texts together and learning more what it's like to live into who God created us to be in the way of Jesus. And so uh, the passage today is Luke 15 verses 8 through 10. So just a very short text, but I want to uh, create some context around it, what's going on, because uh, um, the next four or five weeks, uh, we're looking at parables. These are stories Jesus told. And uh, Jesus always told these stories in a particular context. And uh, in Luke 15, there are three stories he tells, and one is about a lost sheep, one is about a lost coin, and one is about a lost son, or what is famously known as the parable of the prodigal son. And so we're going to look specifically at uh, the parable of the lost coin this morning, but I want to create some context about what's going on in the first century 
in this scene where Jesus is telling the story. And so in Luke 14, verse 1, it says, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. And so this is what's uh, so compelling, or one of the things that's so compelling about Jesus is he will hang out with anyone. Uh, we often think that his relationship with the religious elite, the Pharisees, was really contentious, and it often was, most often was. Uh, but he wasn't unwilling to hang out with them. And so here he is having dinner with a prominent Pharisee. Uh, Luke is very intentional to put the word prominent before Pharisee. This guy is important. He's wealthy, he has position, and he has power. And Jesus is hanging out with this wealthy Pharisee who has a position of power. And at this dinner, he's being watched carefully because the religious elite are very concerned about Jesus and the things he's doing, the things he's teaching, and people he's hanging out with. And so as Jesus is there and as he talks with them, he, he talks about what it's like to have a dinner or uh, something bigger, a party or, or a festival or banquet. He says in verse 13, he's talking to the religious elite. He says, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. See, in the first century, uh, for religious people, there was this deep embedded belief that if something was wrong with you physically, that you must have sin in your life. It must be related to sin in your life. And Jesus repeatedly argues against that and in fact says these are the people you should be associating with these are the people you should be hanging out with those on the underside of power those who are outcasts those who are oppressed these are the people you should invite in those who have always been excluded Jesus said are the people who should be included and so when we get to Luke 15, verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so they haven't learned the lesson yet that Jesus is trying to communicate around who should be included. They have set up their categories of who's in and who's out. And, and for many of the religious elite, there is this recognition that they believe they are God's chosen people, and yet they keep getting oppressed by countries that have strong military powers and come in and settle. And in the current context, that's Rome. And so they despise tax collectors because tax collectors are friendly with Rome. Tax collectors are collecting taxes from the people for Rome. And so tax collectors are despised. And then there's this group that are just lumped as sinners that they would lump that whole crew that Jesus mentioned, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Uh, these are sinners. 
Uh, most of the common folk in the first century, they would label as sinners because they had a very strict standard that you had to live up to. Their interpretation of the Torah, the law, these first five books of the Hebrew Bible, they had long lists of what it looked like to follow all these laws. And the average person just could not live up to that standard. And so they had their categories of who's in and who's out. And what you needed to measure up to in order to be in. And Jesus is hanging out with these people that don't measure up. And so the Pharisees muttered. Isn't that a great word? They muttered. Uh, it is uh, the word diag, diag aguzo. It means to grumble, murmur, complain, to express a grumbling attitude. And so here's the religious elite. And they mutter. They complain. They grumble about Jesus and the types of people that Jesus is hanging out with. Do you want to be known as one who mutters, complains, grumbles about others? Or be known as one who is inviting, who is grateful, who is kind, and recognizes that all of life is gift? It's simple gift. And so this is the context that we find ourselves in when Jesus then launches into these three stories. is the context of a group of religious people who have their categories of in and out, who's included, who's excluded, their lists of what you need to do in order to measure up to be in. And then you have Jesus, who they're grumbling about because he hangs out with the people who don't measure up. And so they are grumbling. And then he tells the story of the lost sheep. I'm just going to read this, and then we're going to really look uh, more closely at the lost coin. Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman who has 10 silver coins loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Uh, how many of you have lost something that's important to you? Almost all of us, right? Uh, think of uh, how you feel when you just lose your phone. If you can't find your phone, or if you're driving to work and you realize you left your phone at home. Uh, some of us are so addicted to our phones, that would just simply never happen, right? It's just an extension of our hand. It'd be like losing your hand. Uh, but for some of us, it, we've forgotten our phones at home. 
and that, that feeling of like, I can't live without my phone. Uh, what have we become when we get to that point where we feel like we can't live without something, this thing? Uh, and then the feeling when you find it. I suppose it's not too difficult now with find my iPhone and things like that. But uh, there was, uh, when we lived in Michigan and Jenna was pregnant with our third child, uh, she had an opportunity to go to Hawaii with a friend. And so I was gonna stay home with the other two and Jenna was gonna go to Hawaii with this friend uh, and her passport had expired and so she needed a driver's license. Uh, she's on her, everything's packed. Friend shows up to pick her up to go to the airport. Can't find her driver's license. Like this whole trip is now in jeopardy because she can't find her driver's license and because her passport's expired. The whole thing could just be off. This, this last getaway before child number three is born just feels like it's evaporating before her. Uh, and just that sinking feeling of this lost license means a lost vacation to Hawaii. And then the feeling when we found the license <laughs> and she went to Hawaii. There was great rejoicing. <laughs> um, so you familiar with Bitcoin? Bitcoin, this is a phenomenon of digital currency that has skyrocketed. There's a guy in Wales who in 2013 bought 7,500 Bitcoin. 7,500 of them for like not much at all when they were basically worthless. They're worth over 4,000 a piece right now. He bought 7,500 of them. He had his private key to all his Bitcoin on a hard drive that he threw away and is in a landfill. He cannot access his 7,500 Bitcoin ever again. They're worth over $30 million. What if he bought that landfill and just started digging until he found it? What kind of party do you think he would throw after he found his lost Bitcoin. Uh, th this is the kind of feeling Jesus is trying to generate in telling these stories about something lost that is found. That this woman who is sweeping her floor, searching the floor everywhere for this lost coin, this is the way God feels about us, searching for us and to help us wake up to God. It's not like God doesn't know where we are. That's not the point of the parable. Uh, the point is more that God is always pursuing, always seeking, always going after us to help us be found. And I think it's we who have to wake up to God finding us. We have to wake up to God's presence. And often uh, these parables are traditionally taught as uh, like someone who is not a Christian uh, becoming a Christian. And while that, I, I don't think that's uh, a bad interpretation, as I 
have come to understand what I think God is doing in our lives more and more. I, I think this is a parable about every day. Every day God is searching for us to wake up to his presence in our lives. Every day God is inviting us to be found more and more and more. There's always more to be uncovered. There's always more to be revealed. There's always more to recognize, oh, yes, I was created for so much more than laying on the floor. I was created for so much more than wandering away from the 99. I was created for so much more. And God is inviting me to wake up and see the more every day. God invites us to more. Uh, there's some, some things around motivation that I feel like these parables really have to teach us, that uh, motivation drives the true self as well as the false self. In other words, uh, there are things that drive us, and, and when we're living the best possible life God created for us, we're living into the true self. And, and when we're pursuing things that God did not create for us, we're living out of a false self, that which is not truly who God created us to be. And we can uh, both do the same thing, but out of very different motives. If, if we both uh, go to the workday on Saturday, and you go out of a desire to serve, out of a heart to help, out of a, a longing to be with others and, around a common cause and a common purpose, and I go, well, because I'm the pastor and I have to. And there's guilt driving me. And that, like, you're going to experience joy. I'm just going to be like, well, I guess I have to be here. Uh, or, uh, or I can go not because I'm the pastor. But frankly, I don't have to go. I know that. Th this is the beauty. Uh, of getting to be a part of a church like this is you all don't say, Matt, you need to be there because you're the pastor. I know I don't. I, I could not go on Saturday. Or I can go not because I'm the pastor. I can go because I want to. Because there's something in me that says I want to be with my people working alongside them in joy. Uh, there's a very different motive that can drive the same activity. So when we think about what God created us for, and we think about uh, the context Jesus is in, the Pharisees, there is a motive driving the Pharisees. And there's a very different motive driving Jesus. And so, next slide. It, merit or mercy. Uh, when our relationship with God is based on merit, or our relationship with others is based on merit, or our relationship to others and we believe that they need to have merit, there, it, there's a very different motive between merit and mercy. 
And for the Pharisees, they are driven by merit. I need to earn this. I need to earn my salvation. I need to earn my friendships. I need to earn respect. And for Jesus, he's driven by mercy. Everyone's in. Everyone's welcome at the table. Everyone's invited to the party. Which, by the way, when you read uh, the parable of the prodigal son, who's the one refusing to go to the party? The elder son. He's invited. He's invited. And the, the father says, my son, everything I have is yours. But he, he doesn't believe it because he believes he has to earn it. And his younger son didn't earn anything and gets a party and the fattened calf. And he's sitting outside the party angry because the younger son didn't deserve it. None of us deserve it. It's mercy. Are you driven by merit? Or are you driven by mercy? How, how do you view others in your life? Uh, merit or mercy? Uh, secondly, transaction or transformation? Uh, I think many of us often view our relationship with God as transactional or our relationship with others as transactional. I do for you, you do for me. I do for you, you do for me. Uh, when what God created us for is transformation. God invites us into a life of transformation and being renewed in the image of God to become more and more and more like he created us to be, to live a life of generosity, of love, of gratitude, of hope, of kindness. It's a very different posture than transaction. Next, guilt or grace. Uh, now, now all these are, are pretty much the same, uh, a different way of saying the same thing. But perhaps some of these words will resonate with you more than others. Uh, are you driven by guilt or are you driven by grace? Uh, the Pharisees wanted to guilt people into living a certain kind of life. Jesus didn't want to guilt anyone into anything. He just wanted to pour grace on them. And when they wake up to that grace, their lives will change. When we live our lives based off guilt, I need to do this, I have to do this, rather than grace, it's a very different motive. It's a very different posture. And God invites us into the party of grace. God invites us into the banquet of grace. God invites us into a life of grace. And when we wake up to God's grace in our own lives, we will only want to live the way God created us to live. Not out of fear, but out of joy, out of delight, out of a recognition that we have woken up to a whole new reality, a whole new way of being, that the reality, the, the ground of being that God has set up in the universe is not based off fear. It's based off love. 
And when we're driven by love and grace and mercy and transformation, it's a whole new way of being in the world. And it is freeing. It's so freeing. Uh, when Jesus says, I tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Uh, in the parable for that, when he, he says, I tell you in the same way there will be rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Just, uh, Jesus is being cheeky. It's, it's like, the righteous people don't, who needs to repent in the story? Who, who, everybody. Who needs to change? So the Pharisees don't think they need to change a thing. They're perfect. They got everything lined up, every jot and tittle. Man, they're the good guys. We're in, you're out. And Jesus, well, you don't think you need to repent, so why would I try to convince you? Uh, speaking of repentance, I feel like it's become a dirty word. Like, we think negatively about this word. So I want to think about this word for a moment. Uh, because if we understand it properly, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, repent means metaneo. Meta is change. Noio, mind. It's to change the mind, to think differently. Uh, and I think if you grew up in a religious tradition, uh, in some capacity, and th this word was used. Uh, sadly, I'm afraid that for many of us, it was used in a way of, you need to repent, because you're a sinner. Rather than, if I can have the next slide, uh, merit or mercy, transaction or transformation, guilt or grace, one more, judgment or joy. Uh, sadly, I think that when we hear the word repent, the words we would identify it with have more to do with the words on the left than on the right. Am I correct? They should have to do with the words on the right. When we hear repent, it has nothing to do with merit, nothing to do with transaction, nothing to do with guilt, nothing to do with judgment. It has everything to do with mercy, transformation, grace, and joy. Because when we repent, it's like God found us and picked us up and put us back in our rightful place. That which is fallen to the ground, that which is broken, that which is lost, that which is bent and marred, God is lifting up and saying, wake up. I made you for so much more. I made you for mercy, transformation, grace, and joy. I made you for something more. And repentance has nothing to do with merit, transaction, guilt, and judgment. It has everything to do with waking up and saying, oh my goodness, in light of God's love, in light of God's pursuit, in light of God's grace, why would I ever keep walking this way? I want to walk more towards God and become more of who God created me to be. That's true repentance. And what true repentance brings is a party. It brings joy. It brings delight. Repentance isn't a bad word. It's not a dirty word. It is joy. It is delight. It is party language. 
Because when we repent, when our mind changes, when we are transformed by the renewing of our minds, we recognize we're already in the party. When we don't change our minds, we're sitting outside of the party grumbling about who's in the party. That's unrepentance, not getting to party. Repentance is getting to party. Am I changing your mind about the word repentance? God wants us to party. He invited us to the party. He invited us to a world of love and grace and mercy and transformation and gift and delight and joy. It's joy. Uh, I read an article a couple days ago in the New York Times interview with Bono about uh, their new album that will be coming out in December. Uh, a couple years ago, they had this album called Songs of Innocence that suddenly appeared in all of our iTunes music libraries for free. Some people got angry about that. Other people like me were delighted. Uh, so Songs of Innocence comes from uh, this poem, William Blake, uh, who also wrote uh, Songs of Experience. And so now the new album is called Songs of Experience. I'm giving you too much information. What I wanted to tell you <laughs> is that uh, Bono talked about how we live in a world on fire. Like, you think about hurricanes and, and literal fires in our own state and, and north of us. And when we think about earthquakes and when we think about pain in our own personal lives and suffering, uh, we live in a world on fire. And, and he said, joy is an act of defiance to a world on fire. Joy is an act of defiance in the face of oppression, in the, in the face of, of uh, abuse of power, in the face of natural disasters. When we can still live with joy, it's an act of defiance. And that's the kind of defiance God invites us into. Joy, love, delight, mercy, transformation, and the very act of the cross was an act of defiance. That which we thought was death was an act of defiance against death. Uh, the author of Hebrews tells us that, but for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross, scorning its shame. Uh, the cross was an act of defiance. It, it was a symbol of the empire. It was a symbol of Rome's way of torturing and shutting down rebellions. And Jesus turned it into an act of defiance. And it brought joy and delight because he conquered death and showed us a better way to live, a better way of being in the world. So this morning when we come and we take this bread and we dip it in the cup, it's an act of defiance. It's looking at a world on fire and it's saying, I choose joy. It's looking at a world on fire and saying, I choose mercy over merit. I choose transformation over transactionalism. I choose grace over guilt. I choose joy over judgment. I choose love, not fear. I choose the way of Jesus because it's the best possible way to live. God, thank you that we get to be a part of what you're doing in the world. Thank you for inviting us to the party. 
Help us to say yes every day. God, give us the capacity in a world on fire to choose joy, to choose grace, to choose to be transformed into your image. God, as you seek us out every day, wake us up, and may we say yes. May we choose gratitude over complaint. Thank you for always pursuing us. In the name of Jesus, amen.